This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good afternoon, fellow listeners. I'm delighted to be with you again today for uh, my second radio show on Teacher Talk Radio. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. So, as I've just said, this is my second radio show as a hostess, and I'm obviously happy to share uh, with you the topic of the day. But first, I'm going to introduce myself for those who are new to our podcast and our radio show. So, I'm Maud. I'm a French citizen uh, of West African and French ancestry. I have been living in the UK since 2008 in London. And I'm also a professional educator. I work in the secondary state school in North London, where I do teach Spanish, French, as well as humanities, um, which is to say history and geography. I only teach KS3 and 4 for Spanish, French, um, no, Spanish and history and geography. And I teach French for KS4 and KS5. So um, I am experienced as a teacher in the charity sector as well. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, my profile is at profprofmfl. And all views I share on Twitter are my own. I do not represent anyone else or any businesses. So what are we talking about today? Well, it's simple. I talk about something that's very dear to me, and it is Multilingualism. So um, multilingualism today, we're going to have approximately an hour to dive into the subject, talk about what it means, what happens in the UK regarding multilingualism, what happens in schools and what happens in the homes. And for that, in the second part of our show after the news at 4 p.m., we will have a guest speaker. And my guest speaker is Monica. She is not an educator. She is a mother with children who are multilingual. And she will tell you all about her experience, her personal experience of being a person who's got more than one language spoken in her family and how she deals with it. So this is what we're going to do today. Now, first definition of words, because I'm a linguist and because I'm a historian as well, words have meaning and I always want to look at their history. So um, the etymology of multilingualism is pretty straightforward. We have multi, which means many or several in Latin, and we have lingual, which means language in Latin. So many languages. Now, we are going to agree on one definition for today's podcast and radio show. Multilingualism is 
an ability to speak, write, read, converse in more than one language effectively. So it means that um, it has to be someone who might speak and write and read fluent Spanish and also um, have an intermediate level, let's say in English or French. But it has to be, um, the definition has to include people who can write in all of these languages, even though it might be seen as restrictive because there's lots of people in the world who speak more than one language and yet do not have the skill to write it. But today we're going to focus on multilingualism, including the ability of writing in that language. So multilingualism is a fact of life for many, many people around the globe. Uh, we have many countries which have more than one official language. So as such, we have Algeria, we have Morocco, we have Canada, where there's more than one official language. In Canada, the official languages used in administration is English as well as French. But in other countries, there might be only one official language recorded, such as Russia with Russian, France with French, and Germany with German. Even though other languages are recognized and spoken in these countries. So I might say that there is a correlation between how centralized a country is as far as government and its institutions and its politics are concerned, and the number of official languages that are accepted in its administration. France is a very centralized country, so it recognizes only one official language. Canada is more diverse in its system and it recognizes two. So that's for the official side of things. Now, if you think about England, there are many, many, many languages spoken in England. The most famous ones are obviously English, but also Gaelic, Welsh. And then you have all the languages um, issued from immigration that are spoken by people who came to the UK later. So you do have German spoken here. You have lots of Spanish that is spoken. You have lots of French. Remember the latest census said in 2001 that there was 110,000 French people living in the UK. So that's a lot of people who speak French, for instance. Um, but let's not just focus on what's accepted as an official fact. So I want to paint a picture of what's going on in the UK as far as languages are concerned. So my data is not very recent, I'm afraid, because we have had a lot of disruption caused by COVID. So before COVID, um, the figures I managed to find via the British Council website are that there is only 8% of people living in the UK who are speakers of more than one language, which means that they are able to read, write, converse in two languages at least. So that's not a very high percentage. Now, if you look at the percentage of people who are multilingual in Luxembourg, for instance, it's over 80%. 
So it's quite a shocking difference, which leads the British Council to um, have, they've published a report and they've mentioned that the UK was in a state of language deficit. An all-party parliamentary group called the APPG for Modern Languages published a report on that matter, on the matter of language deficit. And I'm going to quote Professor Mike Kelly here, um, who is a language, languages advocate, an expert and an advisor to that all-party parliamentary group. So he said in a report you can read on the British Council website, there is a link there, he says that um, there is a lack of language skills in the UK that is actually costing the UK economy 3.5% of its GDP of its annual GDP. And he goes on to say, I quote, our language blind spot costs us a lot of lost business, and it will need a multi-pronged approach to turn this around. The APPG report sets strategic objectives to achieve this in the areas of education, business, and public policy. So these were the views of Mike Kelly. So the, pic the picture, the general picture in the UK is that we do not have enough people who speak more than one language. And this impacts business, which impacts the country's finances, and it impacts all of us. Now, what languages are spoken when they are spoken in the UK? Which languages are learnt in our schools by our by the next generation it used to be mostly european languages such as spanish french and german with a little bit of italian so that was the general picture before 2000 now this is changing because since the years 2000 spanish and french are slowly decreasing in uh, numbers of students who are taking Spanish and French as a language. We have new languages coming. We have Mandarin, Arabic as two new non-European languages in the top five um, of the languages for the future. Now, sadly, the report published on the British Council by the APPG says that languages need to be strengthened in schools, as well as colleges and universities, and that we need to protect our language departments because more than 50 universities in the UK have cut courses or scrapped departments entirely since 2000. So it's a general trend, maybe because we want to save money in institutions, in, in schools, we just get rid of soft studies. Um, soft studies is everything that's not core subjects, such as English, maths, or science, which is really sad because it has an impact on our school departments. We have less and less and less German teachers in schools. In my local area, North London, I visited many schools because I wanted to find the perfect school for my, my children, and there was no German language lessons offered anymore. Now, because we need to 
know what's going on and look at the data, I found an online gov, YouGov poll that was commissioned by the British Council as well. They asked 4,000 UK adults if they spoke more than one language. So three quarters of these 4,000 UK adults said they were unable to speak another language other than English well enough to hold a conversation. So it means that they might have learned French or Spanish or German or Arabic or other languages at school. And yet, a few years down the line, if you ask them, are you confident you can go to a pharmacy or you can go to a shop and converse with a native speaker, then they say they are not able to do it. Now, of these 4,000 UK adults, they were asked, which language did you learn? And um, French was um, the main language still, with 15% of the UK adults who had learned it. German was 6%, Spanish 4%, and Italian only 2%. And now I'm talking about non-European languages. In that cohort of 4,000 UK adults, only 1% of them spoke either Arabic, Mandarin, Russian or Japanese. And less than half a percent Portuguese and Turkish. So this is quite worrying because we do have lots and lots of um, students or children born in the UK who have um, parents who come from another country where Arabic, Mandarin, Russian, Japanese, Portuguese or Turkish were spoken. And yet their children born in the UK and living here did not uh, learn the language of their grandparents and they were not able to maybe converse or read in that language. So there is, um, it's a sort of vacuum effect. Our children in the UK, even though they have a heritage with a different language, seem to not be exposed to that language. Hence the deficit mentioned by the British Council. Now, it would be, if it was just a matter of culture or heritage, it might not affect all of us. But as I've explained earlier, it affects business as well. Small to medium companies don't have the, the same international reach or expertise as big corporations. So they might not have a language department to translate all their leaflets or their emails. And then they can't rely on, on this skill to build relationships with non-English speaking partners, whether it's to order products from abroad or to, to reach new markets. If we do not speak the language, the language is needed. We're going to lose business. And now there has been research commissioned by the British Chambers of Commerce that showed that 96% of exporters had no foreign language ability for the markets they served. Which means if you want to export um, a leather bag made by a British designer in the UK, you might want to export it to China or to the Asia or Thailand or, or even Russia. And if you don't have a member of staff who can speak the language, you might not gain these new markets. So the language deficit in the UK affects all of us and it affects business. 
So we need to be we need to be proactive about this because you know money matters. We should be doing more business according according to the government. We should be doing more business with Asia, with Africa, Central and South America to counterbalance all the businesses we've lost with our immediate neighbors in Europe since Brexit. Now, some of the fastest growing economies in the world are not Anglophone. They do not speak English. So the center of gravity is moving away from English. We have to also realize that a lot of um, conversations and data exchanged on the internet is actually not in English. And the number of English content is declining. So the only way for us to make sure business thrives in the future is by not being short-sighted and by grasping an opportunity when it presents itself. So nurturing the acquisition of more than one language for our next generation or our current generation of students is a survival, a question of survival for our businesses. Now, you might ask, because this is a teacher's radio, what is going on in schools to tackle this language deficit? Well, I've got more data and it's not, again, showing the UK in a positive light. Less than 10% of UK Year 11 students who are studying French for their GCSEs achieve the level B1, if you refer to the European Framework Reference, CEFR, which means that they are not always able to understand official documents in French if they are asked to do so. So their level does not allow them to be efficient intermediate language learners. This is the lowest proportion of any other European country. So it is worrying because even students who've spent five years learning French from year seven all the way to year 11, their level is not high enough once they leave our secondary, secondary schools with their GCSEs. The figures that I looked at from the Department of Education or for the education are not reflecting what has been happening since 2020 with the lack of learning due to the lockdowns and COVID. So what we are talking about now with the data we have now might be even worse if we took into account the effects of COVID. Still, looking at what was happening in 2018, for instance, um, it showed a trend indicating that schools in England are using the Progress 8 measures. So they use this measure for the EBAC to assess performance of their students. But the problem is that Progress 8 does not have to offer languages. So there is an even bigger number of secondary state schools that are, or, or even private schools that are not using A-level classes. They get rid of languages for their A-level. Class slices are very small because not many students choose to study French, Spanish, German, Arabic, or Mandarin for their A-levels. So because of budget cuts, less and less students are offered that opportunity. And GCSE entries for languages have been falling 
for decades, despite the efforts to introduce more government targets about the promotion of languages. Now, if you ask me as an educator specializing in languages, what are the effects of COVID and the lockdowns on language learning in, in our schools now in 2022? I would say that because learning a language is something you need to do regularly to keep it up. Having six months off school without a teacher allowing you to practice your speaking or your listening in a regular manner has had a very, very drastic effect on our year 11 students. And despite all the efforts that MFL teachers have put in place to make sure their students would be ready for this year's GCSE exams, they have missed out a lot. Now, why have they missed out a lot? Because language learning is incremental. Language learning develops in a spiral. We start with no knowledge at all, and we build upon it at each lesson. So if we miss two weeks of lessons because we were um, sick with COVID or self-isolating, we've missed out on a lot of things that we don't have time to catch up with. And also, language learning is about immersion. And to facilitate retention of the language, you need to be immersed in that language at least every day or every week. So exposure, immersion and retention are specific of language learning. You can catch up with your history lessons if you've missed out. It's a lot of reading. It's a lot of maybe watching programs, history programs on TV. You can catch up in your own time when you're self-isolating. For language learning, it is much harder without the guidance of a teacher in a face-to-face -face setting. Now, the latest figures show that the proportion of 16-year-old students studying a language has dropped back to less than 40%. So those figures show that the proportion varies by geography. In London, it's above average. And it's below average outside the southeast. So the further up north you go, the less the students are learning foreign languages. And also there is a gender divide, not just a geographical divide. More girls choose to take a language. It's always been um, quite interesting to see how many um, people are in the A-level classes and very, very often it's a majority of girls. So we can see that it's, it's quite a, a divided uh, picture I'm presenting today about UK schools and also multiculturalism. So in schools that select pupils by ability, grammar school or academically selective school, over three quarters of students learn a language. So that is quite high. And this is showing another discrepancy. It's not just where you live. It's not just your gender. It's also what type of school you go to. Because that proportion falls to below a quarter percent in some other schools. So if you're a girl, if you live in the Southeast, if you attend a selective school, 
you're more than likely to study a foreign language or even two foreign languages. But if you're a working class boy living in, North, in the Northeast, you're much less likely to learn a, a language, a foreign language. There is a good report published by the Higher Education Policy Institute entitled A Languages Crisis um, by Megan Bowler. So the problem with reports is that they always use the term crisis. And I think after two years of COVID and, and uh, the war in Ukraine, the word crisis has lo lost its potency. Um, we don't take it. We know it's serious, but if everything is a crisis, then nothing else is a crisis anymore. So I, I wouldn't use the, the term crisis for languages. I would just say it's a missed opportunity for the whole of the, of the country and for our, our young people. Now, as I said earlier, um, there's less and less German teachers in our schools. The um, GCSE entries show that German has fallen by 67% since 2002 and French entries as well. Now, there was a Guardian article published in January 2020, before the first lockdown, and it said that uh, the devolved school systems in Wales and Scotland have a much better success in encouraging the study of languages than England. So you see, there, there's a way. And uh, if we look at what is done in Wales and Scotland, we can improve what's going on in the UK, in England in particular. And Scotland and Wales are doing a great job because they start in primary school. And this is, I think, the motto of the day. Multilingualism has to start early. There is um, this worrying trend I've mentioned, um, the link between the more academic a school is, the more languages it offers. I have examples. I am, there's quite a famous private school in my area where I know the students are offered Russian classes, French classes, Spanish classes, Italian classes, and German classes. So they have five languages offered in their school, which is a private school. And they also have compulsory Latin or Greek. Now, this means that they have to study an ancient language plus a modern language without having the, the opportunity to drop any. Now, in most state schools, in my experience, students are offered one language and they have to keep it up until GCSEs. But it is also quite um, common that some students are dropping their language because they do something else. So there is an inequality of access and offer of choice for languages, depending on the type of school you go to in the UK. So we had the gender divide, the geographical divide. Um, we have the state school and private school divide, and we have also the class divide. Because if you are middle class and you go to a selective sc school, even if it's a state school, you might have a better choice and a better opportunity to learn languages. And by definition, schools which take in larger proportions of pupils who are el eligible for free school meals, which is still an indicator of poverty, they tend to 
timetable languages for fewer hours per week when it's compulsory, because it costs a lot of money to have um, to hire MFL teachers. So we tend to have less hours of studying a language when we are compulsory learning it. Now, because I don't want to have such a depressed outlook on the situation, um, I just wanted to say that there was science that some people wanted their children to learn a language and that they had the opportunity. So there is the Mandarin Excellence Program that has been developed by the Department for Education in England in partnership with um, a university. And it offers extra uh, intensive language program for students who want to learn Mandarin. And it's up to eight hours per week, which is quite a lot of hours. Um, this was almost unimaginable 20 years ago, but now we have students who do after-school teaching, self-study and intensive learning in the UK, and their level of fluency is improving. So that's something positive. Now, Mandarin language is subsidized via UCL, the Institute of Education and the British Council. So this makes it very popular to UK schools. And I would advise any parents who's listening today or any educators to ask their schools to contact the British Council to see if they can start creating a department for Mandarin. Because I do have, um, I do have a friend who asked her school to, to contact the British Council. And this year, her son started learning Mandarin as an option in his own school. So it is possible to bring change if we are being a bit proactive as parents as well as educators. Now, I don't want to be naive about the story of multilingualism. And I just want to also raise the issue that not all languages are equal and they are not treated equally. Um, there is a lot of terminology that can be seen as uh, being quite politically incorrect. So I'm just going to quote that there is a hierarchy of languages. And um, we need to understand that when a language is successful and is fashionable, it's because it's the language of a superpower economically. So, for instance, French used to be the language of the aristocracy in Russia, in England, um, all over Europe, and now it is not anymore. So English has taken over. But we have a lot of um, languages that are suffering because they're not seen as having any value. And there is a bias against some uh, minority or community languages who do not get the support they need. So in my experience, some very forward thinking schools have organized uh, in their MFL departments to offer extra support for Turkish learners and Portuguese learners and Polish learners, because we have, um, particularly in big cities, we have student cohorts who speak these languages because it's their native language at home. So if we can offer them just the help they need to sit for their GCSEs in Turkish, Portuguese, Polish or Urdu, then we can promote our languages. And you, you never know, you might have a student who goes on to create his business and then he's going to 
order ex, um, import products from Turkey or from Poland or for, from um, Pakistan and then bring it to the country and bring more wealth. So I think it's definitely our duty in our MFL departments, if we have one, to try and encourage the students in our local communities who have another language. And if they're studying French or Spanish, because that's the only offer there is in the school, we should tell them from year seven that there is an opportunity to sit for um, the GCSE papers in their native language as well. It should not be a competition between French or Turkish or Urdu. It should be done sideways at the end of the day. It's the same format um, with a little bit of extra help, maybe asking from native speakers from the parent community to come into school two hours a week on a Friday to help out with uh, teaching Urdu or writing Polish, that would change that situation and reduce that language deficit. So I'm just throwing some ideas out and I'm hoping that they reverberate around. Now there's a great book that I've read so that you don't have to. <laughs> it's called The Language Myth. Why Language is Not an Instinct by Vivian Evans and it's published by Cambridge University Press. And I just want to, to show you um, how important this book is in, um, the top, on the topic of multilingualism. Because there's so many ideas that are on the internet or that families carry around and, and promote. They're actually not based on research uh, about acquiring more than one language. So first, we need to stop with a bias if you speak one language at home, it doesn't hinder your chances of succeeding in learning another language at school. Um, so we'll go back to the bias in the facing multilingualism. But first I want to quote from that book, The Language Myth. So Vivian Evans, children actually have to do the hard graft of working things out slowly from the bottom up and with exposure and practice they start to form the grammar of the language they're acquiring so what i like about vivian evans quote is that she does highlight that this is a slow progress and it is difficult so we don't learn a language just by having grandma talking to us in her native tongue it's not enough you need a lot of different forms of output to become properly multilingual, able to converse, speak, and read in more than one language. So I think hard graft is definitely what I want to retain from um, uh, Vivian Evans' quote. So now I'm getting into the nitty gritty of learning a language because that's what I do on a daily basis. And this is also the topic of the day. So, what does acquiring another language takes? So first, language acquisition is gradual and incremental. A toddler, or even a baby, starts with one word, milk, and then adds a pivot word, as we call it, more milk. And then the child starts rudimentary grammar, such as 
there's milk or I want milk. So this is how we learn the language. It sounds easy at the beginning, but it's a long process. And in my personal and professional experience, um, I have to say teaching a language is the work of a village, of a community, and it can be done by just one motivated person. So now I'm going to share with you some of my per personal experience. I am a French citizen, as I explained earlier, and I have children myself. And I was faced with being the only French speaker in my household, wanting to impart that knowledge about French language and French culture, whereas my partner speaks another language. He speaks Danish. Um, and it was really difficult at first to choose um, how we were going to talk to each other in our in our house, because obviously I, I, I speak English to my partner because my Danish at the time wasn't so good. I'm improving on it, by the way. Um, but it was, a, it was a conscious decision. I decided to only address my children in French and then switch to English to talk to their father. Now, that sounds like a very good way to start, but it wasn't enough because obviously the children growing up, when I was alone with them, they were answering back in French. But as soon as their father came into the house, then they would want to switch to English the way I did. So it created tension <laughs> and difficulties. So I had to contact um, other French parents and I realized that there was more help at hand. So I want to um, talk about the FLAM network, F-L-A-M, which is French as a mother tongue. French language as a mother tongue. So it's um, it's a network of mini Saturday schools or after school clubs supported and financed at times by the AEFE, -E -E -E, the French Agency for the Promotion of uh, French Learning Abroad. So this was created in 1990 by the Ministry of European Affairs in France. And it's a great agency because it organizes um, actions and meetings and promotes French as a language. Um, just to give you an idea, there is 270 million people who speak French in the world. So French, you would say, doesn't need that much help. Well, actually it does. It's losing grounds. Uh, Spanish is becoming one of the most uh, commonly spoken European language. And English is the one that's the most popular. So if you want to, um, to remember that idea of hierarchy, English is at the top in Europe, and then you have Spanish and French fighting for the second place. So this is what I did personally. I contacted that uh, network and I joined a French Saturday morning school and I've never left. <laughs> so my children have been going to Saturday morning schools all their childhood. And that's not just for French, because if you want to know about similar programs, you have the Goethe Institute and the Cervantes Institute. So these institutes are worldwide and you can find them in any capitals or big cities. And they offer um, language lessons for adults 
language lessons for children and it's a meeting point for meeting other parents who are just like you trying to promote multilingualism in their household so there's help at hand um, i'm not aware about italian but i'm sure there are many many options out there with the internet i would say if you're a parent and you have a baby and you want that baby to learn another language whether it's your mother tongue or not browse and find out which local structure is available near you i know i have students who go to russian school greek school and turkish school so i'm sure you can find something in your local area why would you do this why would you encourage multilingualism to me it's obvious but I don't know, maybe you listener or a friend just doesn't see the point of um, learning another language. Well, in the words of Nelson Mandela that I'm quoting, if you talk to a man in the language he understands, that goes to his head. If you talk to him in his own language, that goes to his heart. And if you're not really taken by that, the poetry in, in this, statement. Um, just imagine if you are trying to woo a new client for your bank or for your business and you have a member of staff who speaks fluently the language of your client, if you invite that member of staff for that lunch you have booked, this is going to make your new client more keen on hiring you for your services because it's the language of the heart, isn't it? So I think it is a matter of urgency to tackle that deficit. Now, let me list the positives of learning to speak more than one language. It brings open-mindedness. And I think in our post-Brexit era, it is even more important to let our students learn more than one language other than English, to be honest. Learning a language teaches you about self-discipline because it's hard craft, in the words of Vivian Evans. Learning a language is about self-motivation and we want self-motivated citizens. Learning a language helps you make friends and that, that's the best we can do. We need friends, we need we know since the lockdowns, we know how important it is to meet our friends and see them. So when you learn a language, you go to a new language course, you meet new people, you open up your circle of friends. Learning a language makes you travel and traveling is fun and it's enriching. Learning a language on a science, uh, the scientific aspect creates new pathways in your brain and it increases your understanding. Learning a language makes you open-minded to the diversity of opinions. It makes you discover cultures, new food, and it also scientifically, it's been proven scientifically, it lessens the risk of developing dementia in old age. Learning a language gives you better job opportunities, it improves social skills, it helps you navigate social mores and uh, gives you more ease, and it's also a good finance um, plan, financial plan, because you might want to study abroad 
and end up paying less tuition fees. Now, because I always want to bring a very diverse, um, I want to offer you a diverse program where you see the pros and cons and, and it's, it's really um, showing you all aspects of the topic. I also want to now talk about the negatives of learning to speak more than one language. Because obviously it is my job to teach how to speak a language and it's also something I do for myself. Um, I speak four languages. So I can tell you what the negatives are. Um, just so you can have, um, you can make up your own mind about it. So the negatives. Financial cost. It costs a lot of money to take extra lessons. It costs a lot of money to organize school trips abroad. And it also costs a lot of money to buy books in the language, comic books, to watch the movies uh, in the language, in the target language, the language you're learning. It costs money to also go to the restaurant to, to try and sample the food you, you are of the country you're learning from. And um, I would say it costs a lot of time and time is money. Shh. Time is money. I'm going to start with the news and um, sorry about the interruption. So uh, I was talking about the negatives of learning to speak a language. So I did talk about the financial cost. I talked about the time it's consuming five minutes a day, at least to get all the vocabulary you need two hours per week minimum or four hours if you're learning for your GCSEs, for instance. Now, there's another aspect of uh, learning a language that is often used to um, reduce the exposure for young, very young children, and that's the delayed speech acquisition. So I've experienced it myself in my household. When you um, immerse a very young child to different languages, they are often struggling with the um, input with the load and it delays their speech. So I remember my son being two, all his uh, friends who were British and who only spoke English at home, they were much more advanced in their grammar. They could use different tenses. Uh, my son was still just about repeating that one word um, that he needed. But I would say this is a negative because obviously it reduces um, it, it, it increases a discrepancy between the students, but in the long run, you will see that it's negligible. Now, another negative about multilingualism is the risk of confusion for children who are struggling academically. And again, I see it in my practice as a teacher and at home as well, because my son is struggling at times um, with, um, he's got a special needs diagnosis. So, I see it, learning a language is another challenge. But if it's done with enough differentiation, it is not something that will damage your son or your child's expectations in the long run. But another negative is it takes time and organization. And also you have a pressure to spend time in the country you're learning the language of. So, um, for those who can actually access traveling easily and go on a holiday, you might end up having to go to that one country, <laughs> it might be Spain or France, 
um, more than uh, to other countries just because you want to keep that language going. The last negative I would say, and I see it in my work as a teacher, is confidence issues. Because for the students who are shy, who are not at ease in speaking in public, learning a foreign language is difficult because they need to work on that skill. I would add to that um, the issues faced by children who have a stutter, because I have attended a training about it, and um, the way we teach foreign languages relies on speaking a lot. And for children who have a stutter, it's um, anxiety increasing. Now, it doesn't mean they can't learn that language. It just means that with differentiation and with a teacher who is aware of the issue, you can achieve the same results as or very near results as uh, with a child who doesn't have um, confidence issues. So that was for the negatives. And I hope you appreciate the honesty of, of showing both sides of, of the coin of multilingualism. Now, before we go on to the news, I just want to share some positives and um, some good news, because I was giving you all the data and all the facts about multilingualism in the UK. And you've noticed that we're lagging behind many European countries we are not supporting our students in schools to achieve the best results in learning um, another language. But I did want to give you a little bit of hope. Um, so for all those parents who are listening, um, who have young toddlers in the house, I'm just going to give you one piece of news from that same book um, that I was quoting earlier by Vivian Evans, The Language Myth. <clears throat> I quote, there is a substantial body of research evidence stretching back over three decades that indicates that TV and films subtitled in the same language for the deaf and hearing impaired can not only transform programs in a foreign language into accessible and enjoyable material for learners, but they can also be of great value in language learning both inside and outside the classroom. So what does that mean? Well, it means, dear parents, that you can just plonk your toddlers and your primary age school children in front of a cartoon as long as it's in a foreign language with subtitles in that foreign language. Because it's good for them. Is that lovely? <laughs> All right, we're moving to the news. I hope you enjoyed it. See you after the news. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, 
Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. Introducing Autism Aspirational Futures, a virtual SEN conference for parents and carers. Do you work with parents or carers of students with autism? If so, this free virtual conference from Witherslack Group can support them and you. Providing inspiring talks from leading experts, offering practical advice on supporting children and young people with autism and associated needs. This very special event will take place during Autism Acceptance Week and is sure to be an enjoyable occasion for everyone wanting to develop their knowledge, understanding and celebrate their children's amazing superpowers. Don't miss out! Register for free at witherslackgroup.co.uk today. Witherslack Group the leading provider of schools and children's homes for children with special educational needs. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In England, schools will have to open for no less than 32.5 hours per week from September. At the moment, the head teacher with the governing body decides the length of the school day in England and 14% of schools will be affected. Nadim Sahawi, the Education Secretary, also wants to encourage multi-academy trusts. He said, The evidence is clear that a family of schools that is really tightly managed, really well supported, especially through covid has delivered better educational outcomes for children. So strong, and I underline strong, multi-academy trusts is the infrastructure we need to complete and deliver. According to The Sun, figures show that 75% of schools had days that met the average length of between 6 hours 15 minutes and 6 hours 35 minutes. Kevin Courtney of the National Educational Union said schools and pupils had been left battered and bruised by the pandemic and a more sophisticated approach was needed. Paul Whiteman of the Head Teachers Union, the NAHT, said simply adding five or ten minutes to a day is unlikely to bring much, if any, benefit. Gillian Mackay, a Lanarkshire MSP, is calling on North Lanarkshire Council 
to write off the remaining £28,011 that remains outstanding for school dinners. Most of that money is an outstanding debt owed for children at primary school, despite all P1 to P5 across Scotland now being entitled to free school meals. Ms Mackay said, Children can't get a good education if they are hungry at school. I believe that North Lanarkshire Council rightly ensures every pupil has a meal at lunchtime, even if they don't have the money to cover it. But these figures make it clear that debts are being chased from families who simply can't pay. With the cost of living crisis putting huge pressure on family finances, this is the right time to write off all outstanding school meal debt. Pursuing the debt is causing stress and embarrassment for pupils and their families. But I know that staff are deeply uncomfortable asking pupils for money they know the family does not have. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk VPN. For those of you thinking, why is Steve talking about an underwear fashion faux pas? A VPN is a virtual private network, and knowing a little bit about them might make you realise you actually need one. What is it? Well, in a nutshell, a VPN changes how internet data is transmitted from a device. It allows the user to be more hidden. I know what you're thinking. I'm no cyber criminal. Why do I want to conceal my data? Well, let's look at three things a VPN can do for you. I'm going to use a phone as an example, but all of these can be applied to any device you can put on the internet. Do you use public networks? A public network may be the Wi-Fi on the bus or train, a local coffee shop or fast food restaurant, any connection that isn't your home. Transmitting data on these networks can potentially allow your data to be intercepted by third parties. Having a VPN allows you to encrypt your data from your device rather than depending on the network you're connecting to. So, when surfing the web while enjoying a burger and fries, you can be confident if you're being intercepted, the data will be useless to the interceptor. The next is shopping online. When connecting to an online shop, some stores use your location and unique device ID to target you. If you're returning to look at a product, the likelihood is you're going to buy it. Knowing this, some stores use clever algorithms to increase the price to maximize their profit. With a VPN, you can mask this data so the price you see is the initial price. The third is some streaming services are blocked by internet providers or unavailable from outside of certain countries. If you're using a VPN, you can choose where to set your location to allow you to see the content you wish to stream. I've not looked at individual providers. Some are free, some are paid for. If you're unsure, find a friend who's using one, ask them about it, and use the same one as them to begin with. Then you get free tech support. Make sure you know the terms of service. You don't want the VPN you're using keeping your data, as that would defeat the object in the first place. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. Tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Dear listeners, thank you for listening to the news. So um, I'm still waiting for my guest speaker. I don't think she's connected yet, so don't worry. Um, We have plenty of things to say about multilingualism as we wait for her to connect to Podbean. So um, I'm just going to talk about my own experience of language acquisition in my own family. 
Um, it is obviously something that I'm sharing with the educators um, aspect mixed in. So in our household, we do have four languages. We have French as a mother tongue, Danish as a father tongue. We have English as well as the language of the country we live in. And we also learn other languages at school as a foreign languages. So it's a very, very busy uh, household as far as languages are concerned. Now, my main issue when I try to promote the two father and mother tongues that we have is the hegemony of English and American culture. Because when the children were little, we could easily um, make them watch cartoons in French or Danish. We could easily choose the books that we were going to read for bedtime stories. But once they started going to primary school, they had peer pressure and also peer influence um, that was started to sideline our practices. So in the end, we have realized a few years down the line, now that our children are in secondary school, that American culture and English language have won pretty much many battles in the, the multilingual battle in our household. So to counterattack, and I'm using a war um, vocabulary as a kind of tongue-in-cheek here, um, I've had to actually sign up my son to a French school where he's learning the French curriculum with French teachers in French because I noticed that English was winning and his mother tongue was always the last thing he thought about. So I think we have managed to suss it out and have a balanced education because now he's comfortable in writing, reading and conversing, both in English and French. Now, the biggest, um, I wouldn't say loser, but I'm going to say it, is Danish uh, in our household because we do not have enough structures to promote the le learning of Danish. We do not have the same um, network of schools as for the French. We do not have access to um, the same offer for private education in Danish. I mean, Denmark is a very small country. So Danish is the language that's struggling the most. But because I'm proactive and a linguist, I decided to myself learn Danish properly. And now I'm working on my intermediate level. So there is always, always something we can do if we, if we really want to make it work. Um, sadly, it's obviously something I said, it's a financial cost. Um, it is, it is just not something we can do when we have a, a, a short, small budget, budget. There is obviously offers, and I did advise you as parents to check online to see if there was local community uh, schools organized to promote other languages. And there is in, in England, there is, um, for instance, for Danish, there is the Danish church in Regent's Park that offers uh, Lourdes School, which is Saturday school. But it's only for people who live in London. If you live in Birmingham or if you live in um, Dorset, you won't have access to that offer. Whereas for the French with the FLAM network, whether you're in Scotland, Wales or um, Burton-on-Trent, you might have a local Saturday French school. 
So it's really depending on the government's initiatives. And in that sense, the French government, as the German and the Spanish governments are doing a lot of effort to promote their language, Denmark doesn't have as many structures in place. And I think that's because they just started to have Danish people migrating away from from Denmark. And um, maybe in 10 years, they will have more people in that situation. And then they will offer more Danish schools. Um, now, my experience of language acquisition in my job is a completely different situation. Because um, what I'm confronted with on a daily basis in my job is students who do not see the value in learning a foreign language. And it is quite um, difficult to answer because how do you promote learning a language when someone doesn't just see the point of it? I've tried many, many techniques um, and um, the most successful one is to use a school trip. Now, you might be familiar with um, going on a school trip in a foreign country when you're a teenager. The excitement, the fun, um, the awkwardness of trying to order um, a fizzy drink in a different language when you're in a new country you're discovering. This is part of growing up. And I think it's the equivalent of the 18th century Grand Tour when the British aristocrats would go to Venice and, and France and, and would just practice their French and their Italian and, and buy paintings. So to me, this is the best way to promote languages in schools. Sadly, for the last 10 years, we've suffered from many budget cuts in the UK, which has impacted school trips. And in my school, it's been 10 years without school trips for our students. So as I said, again, the financial cost gets in the way, but one way of motivating your students as an MFL teacher is definitely the school trip. Now there's another thing you could do, which is maybe a more affordable school trip, and that's the restaurant trip. So if you're lucky to have a French or Spanish or German restaurant, when you teach one of these languages, or Russian or Turkish or Polish, try and organize an evening out for your students. Make it a big deal. Tell them that if they get enough achievement points, they can order a three-course meal. Um, really make it as a, as a treat to celebrate their involvement in their learning. It does work, but again, it has a cost. So I'm only saying that when you have an MFL budget that's sufficient enough. Now, what you can also do is food tasting in the classroom. So I've tried bringing cheese and it wasn't so successful. I think my student's palate wasn't that open-minded yet. Um, taste buds need time to acclimatize. So I would say start with French sweets. There's lots of websites nowadays where you can order French sweets. And uh, I'm sure you can find the same for Spanish turon or for um, these German lovely martipan biscuits that you have at Christmas. So food tasting is a great way to motivate your students if you're an MFL teacher. Now, to improve motivation to learn languages, I think 
at a nation level, we need to have help from the government. Because remember, Cambridge dropped the, um, the requirement to speak a foreign language in 2008. So we, we are not being helped here by local and national institutions. And if we want to make learning a second language important again, make learning a second language great again, UK, um, you need to have a compulsory aspect. You know, it's the carrot and the stick. So the carrot is the school trip abroad and the stick is compulsory requirement to speak a foreign language to go to university. Just as a point of reference, it used to be a requirement to speak another language at university in, up until the 70s. And I've even checked in Austria, for instance, you had to have a Latin exam entry for uh, a Latin exam to enter a, a, an Austrian university up until the 70s. So why did we lower our expectations? I know there was a push politically to promote um, more people accessing university, but it shouldn't be um, in a detrimental way for learning a language. Now, how to improve motivation to learn the language? By teaching another subject in the target language. So let me explain. Imagine you are learning food technology in French, en français. Well, that can be done quite easily uh, if you have staff that's motivated or if you pair the MFL department with the food technology department, for instance. It's a common trait of education in Luxembourg. So I know Luxembourg is a very tiny country in Europe, but Luxembourg has a student cohort that is multilingual. They speak French, English, German, and sometimes another language as well, because they do a subject, for instance, history in French, and then maybe they do Spanish, maths. So they mix languages and different subjects. And I think we could start doing this in the UK for sure. It just implies a little bit of organization and a little bit of goodwill, but it can be done because most state schools do have a Spanish and a French teacher, for instance, and they have a food technology and a history teacher. So why not make them work together teaching food technology in French and history in Spanish, for instance? It is possible. Now, the extreme ways of promoting the teaching of another language, I'm just going to give you an example. I have a friend whose son is studying um, Irish, Gaelic. So he's, stu he's studying Irish in Ireland in a school which has banned English. So I understand that there's political and historical reasons for this and uh, that it might ruffle a few feathers. But in Dublin, you have an Irish school where, banish, um, where English is banished and it's not allowed to use it in the playground. So that's the extreme answer to the hegemony of English in Ireland, in Irish schools. But 
This is an example of how politics can improve the uptake of languages. And can I just remind you that learning a foreign language has not been compulsory in England beyond the age of 14 since 2004. So it's been going on for almost 20 years, this state of affairs. So it is high time to change this. Now, I'm checking if my guest has arrived. I'm afraid she hasn't. So I'm just going to answer the questions on her behalf because I am also a multilingual uh, family member. So I'm just going to answer the questions myself. And I apologize for the disruption to our program. So the first question is, how can I describe my family background in relation to the topic of multilingualism? So as I said earlier, in my household, we speak French, Danish, English. And then there's the languages that we are learning at school. So my children are learning Spanish, German, and Mandarin. So that's a lot of languages. Now, uh, as a multilingual family, we have a very strict timetable to promote exposure and immersion in the languages we speak. We always go and visit France once a year and Denmark once a year so that we can practice our French and our Danish. We alternate, sometimes it's at Christmas, sometimes it's at summer, and sometimes when we are really motivated, we drive to France and Denmark on a big road trip so that we are both in both countries in one holiday. So we need to work on that connection, on that linking cultures. And uh, it is, again, as I mentioned, a financial decision, but it can also be fun because we, um, at birthdays, we have the Danish flags and we also have um, the French cakes and we try and use uh, English um, recipes as well. So it's a big mix of, um, of culture that we promote on a daily basis. So now let me see if my guest, no, still no guest, that's a shame. I'll keep on answering my own questions then. Uh, the second question was, why is it important for me to speak more than one language? Um, well, I think it's essential, actually. For the reasons I mentioned earlier, um, I think speaking more than one language makes you more open-minded. And also, for us, it's a connection to our family and our heritage. We have also decided to, um, my son has decided to learn to speak German, for instance, because he discovered he has a great grandma who used, who, who was German. And um, the sad story in our family history is that she left Germany, she left Nazi Germany, and she went to, um, she went to um, Denmark, um, she went to Denmark so that she could survive, you know, the Second World War. And she, she married a Dane and she decided to stop speaking German ever. 
So the minute she stepped into um, Denmark, she completely cancelled and censored her heritage and her language and her nationality. It's understandable. Uh, German was the language of the enemy and it was the language of the enemy that had been vanquished. So if she wanted to settle in Danish society, she had to give it up. So her children never spoke German because she never spoke German to them. And it was completely put aside. So I thought that was quite a tragedy and I, I completely understand why she did this. She could she could pass for Danish very very soon. She didn't look she didn't look different. She she just pretended she was Danish. She erased her German culture. So it was quite a positive thing, I thought, two generations further down, to have my son deciding to study German at school. Because it puts things into um family perspective. We are repairing the trauma that happened in the past. We are promoting the German language again. Um, time has passed, time has changed. And I think it's quite a, a nod to that great grandmother that he, he has met once when he was a baby. So that's why I think learning languages and more than one is important. I think it has a healing power actually. Now, why is it important for a child to learn another language other than the language of the country they live in? Well, I think I've answered it uh, pretty, pretty much. Um, if you have a parent who speaks a language, it's wealth. It's cultural wealth. It's, um, it's precious. So you want your child to speak it. So if you come from Iran and you speak Farsi, you should teach your child to speak Farsi and write Farsi and converse in Farsi. Even though it is too difficult to travel to Iran or too difficult or too expensive to go, you need to keep that heritage going. It's, uh, it will disappear if you don't. And your child will be only thinking that English is important. So it's about making all languages equal. And that's why, as an educator, we need to promote community languages. And any child who has a background where they speak Farsi or Urdu or Polish, they should be offered the opportunity to practice once a week with a native speaker and do their GCSE in that language. Um, what are the adjustments I had to make in order to ensure that my child learns to speak another language? Well, I've explained it. I had to join schools, Saturday morning schools, wake up early. Um, and it was, it was a financial decision. And it's still costing me a lot. <laughs> but I thought that was great to do. Um, my guest is telling me she's online. I'm going to allow Newton Hyde to speak to us. Newton, are you here? Let's see if Newton wants to share with us today. I can't hear anything. All right. Let me see. Oh, Monica is saying she can hear us. Hello, Monica. 
I'm sorry, I can't see you in the call-in. Maybe if you try to type in the in the live chat, Monica, and then I could I I could add you there. Let me see if Monica can join us because I really wanted to to share um, Monica's story with us. She is obviously a mother who lives in London and has children who speak more than two languages. So it would have been extremely helpful. So I'm going to try and reach Monica another way. Let me see. This is the joy of technology, isn't it? <laughs> we always want to try and um, use the new tools we have at hand. And once we've had, we have them, we realize they're not always on our side. So let me see if I can reach Monica. So yeah, um, going back to the list of questions I had, what you need to do as a parent when you want to promote multilingualism is invest in the long term. You need to make sure your child is every week exposed to that language and every summer um, that your child visits the country. So you can't make that decision only for a term. It has to be a plan you put in place for a whole year at least, and you need to keep it going. Too often as an educator, I see students who try a class and stay maybe for, I don't know, a year and a half, and then they give up because they're saying, oh, it doesn't work with um, the football class we have, or it, it clashes with the basketball class. And that is, that is, such a such a loss for the child because as i said language learning is incremental it works as a spiral so if you if you miss out on a whole term because it's clashing with your football class you're not going to have a student who can catch up again and this is why the lockdowns have been so bad so detrimental for our students these last two years because they've missed out on the language learning that they can't really catch up unless they are extremely self-motivated, extremely hardworking and have access to outside help. So I think we should, um, we should definitely um, see if we have a call in. Let me see. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? We can hear you. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I had a I had a problem with my connection. Don't oh, worry, Monica. <laughs> don't worry. It's the joy the joy of life shows. <laughs> so, so Monica, I'm so glad to speak to you. So could you tell us, Monica, about your family background? Um, what languages do you speak in your household? Tell us. Absolutely. I'm myself. I'm Polish. Mm -hmm. uh, my husband is French, and my daughter, or our daughter, is Polish, French, and English and British, obviously. So we we got all nationalities mixed up together, and uh, we 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 just uh, we, we play with, uh, with uh, our cultural background. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, Monica, do you also speak fluent French as well? Yes, yes, that's my okay. uh, main uh, job, in fact. I, I, okay. I'm a French teacher as well. <laughs> okay, so at home, which language do you favour? Uh, at the moment, French. Okay. Yes. And is, is it consistent? 
Uh, it is consistent in a communication between us three. Mm -hmm. because, uh, because that's the, the easiest way to communicate as our daughter goes to uh, at the moment at the so she 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 went to a French college mm -hmm. a few years ago and uh, so this is the, the the easiest way to communicate between us three as my husband is French so uh, yeah we, we choose to do that but when I when I speak with my daughter with in one-to-one -one communication it's always in Polish all right. And what does she answer with? Does she answer with Polish when you speak Polish to her, French when you speak yeah. French to her, or does she sometimes include a little bit of English? Uh, she's, uh, she is quite used to communicate with, uh, with us uh, in Polish with me, in French mm -hmm. with her father, and French altogether as we are uh, well, communicating, well, talking uh, three of us together. And, but as, as well, there is a communication between her and our family uh, from myself in Poland and for my husband in, in France. So it's, uh, it, she, she switches languages easily from, from one, uh, one side to another side uh, according to the situation, really. Well, that's fantastic. And how was she about um, having to attend French school or Polish school? Was she always positive about it? Very, very. She's amazing. So she goes <laughs> to. Uh, she started primary level in English. So uh, until the the eleven uh, year six, yes, until the year six, she was attending the primary school here in London. In so learning everything in English. She had mm -hmm. some particular lessons in uh, in French at home, and she always uh, she she's uh, she she goes to a Polish school on Sunday uh, sorry on, on Saturday. Saturday on Saturday Saturday okay yeah. um so how did you find um the Polish school was it easy to find for you for for me personally what do you mean? I mean uh, what was there spaces when you contacted them was it yes. easy to yeah no problem. no problem at all no problem they are very, very welcoming new new uh new, new members mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> new pupils let's say yes yes they are very and well is it are there only polish schools in london or do you think there's some in other big cities in the uk uh from what i heard, what i hear yes there are polish schools in other in other cities there there is a quite a big polish community in england so uh, yes Yes, they, yeah, they, they can, uh, they established, um, well, a network of Polish schools here in, in, uh, in the UK. So it's very convenient. Good. So now you decided that you wanted your child to be trilingual. Yes. Pol Polish, English and French. Why did you make that decision? Why did you think it was so important? Well, uh, obviously, for us, it's uh, it's a question of communicating with the family. I wouldn't be very uh, comfortable uh, if my child was needed to uh, to uh, to translate what uh, she needed to say to her grandma or or her auntie uh, if she wanted if, if she needed to go through us. So mm -hmm. it's very it's very easy for her to communicate with her cousins, with her family, immediate family. 
and uh, and also uh, as well we've got a very international circle of friends so it's just for her to be to be um, well free as a wind as well and it's, <laughs> <laughs> and as well well we we really encourage her to read in those three languages and she's very uh, fluent so so it's really i'm very proud of her <laughs> yeah you must be and i love the fact that you mentioned freedom because i didn't think about it in my list mm. of positives mm. uh the freedom of being able to converse in many languages is precious so um that's yeah. a very good word monica <laughs> <laughs> so so monica to do so what are the adjust the adjustments you had to make um How often do you go to Poland? How often do you go to France? And how do you make the grandparents uh, supportive and happy? And how do you make it work? Oh, my gosh, there are many things you can do. Uh, in our case, uh, we go uh, frequently to Poland. So we respect all traditions, uh, birthdays. Uh, we insist on communicating on a regular basis with, uh, with, the, with the family Uh, she's well, my daughter and obviously us uh, to maintain our level of language we uh, we communicate on a on a, <laughs> almost everyday basis and whatsapp is very very helpful with with mm -hmm. that um so we can see as well uh, the expressions uh, because this is very very important in in language it's not only communication through uh, Uh, through voice, but uh, body language is very important. The the, the gesture, the the mimic, the, everything that is related to the communicate. Uh, um, not the verbal communication, but uh, body communication. Yes. So, uh, so WhatsApp is amazing for that. So video calls, um, as well access to uh, well, we've got we've got so many things around us that are helpful for example watching films in uh, in in the language you you are learning uh going to movies uh going to the theater um uh reading uh, that's what i what i mentioned already and as well anything that uh, is not going through through us adults so for example uh all these relationships with uh, with cousins so That is, that is so important to have a, a peer communication. So the the level, so at the level of of our children, they 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 do communicate on a different level that uh, that us adults. So yes, all all of these elements are very important. So I guess you encourage and nurture friendship with other Polish speaking children. Yes, that, yes yeah. definitely. definitely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're painting a beautiful picture of um, living in a multilingual family. Um, now, I just wanted to know what is difficult um, about having a multilingual family? To be honest, I don't know. I I would I would insist on a very positive, uh, very positive uh, image of of the situation. Maybe what is difficult is uh, sometimes the, sometimes we mix languages. So it's uh, the fact that well, we when we don't uh, remember the word, we easily well. But this is a beauty of of the situation. <laughs> <laughs> we are looking for a word in a in a different language, and then we need to find it. And then sometimes the communication is a little bit slower. 
uh, it does add a little bit of spice in terms of uh, <laughs> of our cultural differences because there yes. are many cult cultural differences even if we live more or less in the same cultural background uh, uh, but I, I would say it's again something positive in my in my uh, in my view in my opinion, uh, but it might be a little bit stressful maybe for for the child for the for for the kids to <laughs> sometimes not to be able to um, to express certain things. But I don't know. I don't. I don't really see any negatives to be honest. So Good. It's difficult. It's difficult to find negatives in uh, of those uh, of this situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we we are convinced that multilingualism <laughs> is is the future. Are there any? Everybody. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I just I, I just wanted to add something. It's if anybody is uh, is uh, kind of in. Um, doubting or, or, or like like finding it difficult it's i think it's in the future as well is easier for for such a child because uh, for for young people because they can just switch easily from one language to another or they can choose a, a variety of uh, jobs in the future that uh, are just easier it's it's just easier for uh, for them to cope with any new language they learn as well because my daughter uh, at the moment uh, she uh, she uh, she learns as well chinese spanish mm -hmm. and and it's just easier for her i think it does help her a lot to understand those languages better and understand the structure the grammar uh, there is no <laughs> not so much uh, difficulty there um, uh, with learning any any new uh, new language it's transferable all the skills she acquires learning a language she can use it in another language definitely. so definitely yeah. um, so what would be the tips you would give to parents who just had a baby and who want either to promote their mother tongue or father tongue or they just want to choose a language they like and teach their child how to speak it. So what would you recommend, Monica? Well, I, I would recommend my way because it worked in our case, uh, is to stick to one language. Uh, so for example, if uh, in my case, my mother tongue uh, is Polish, so I was really uh, very consistent in communication uh, in Polish, communicating in Polish, and it was very, very helpful. And my husband was always communicating in, in French, and there was no mixture between uh, those two. So we were very consistent. Mm -hmm. and it, it would work. Uh, reading, uh, singing to your child in the uh, one uh, and uh, introdu introduction to uh, to the to the culture. So relevant culture is very uh, is very helpful as well. So um, that's very very helpful in in uh, in learning new languages and being proud, being really proud that we can transfer this uh this culture and and being proud of our of our backgrounds so this is very important to not to to be to feel because i why why i'm saying about being proud i, I think that what from from what i can see uh i think arriving uh, in a new country you 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 would like to 
to learn a new culture, a new language, and to, to integrate this new language. But but that's something a, a, a downside downside of this situation because people are they think that um, uh, learn, so teaching your your child this, the language of the country is very important. It doesn't really work this way very very well because you we we sometimes we don't really speak this language very well. So starting with with your own language and then allowing the child to learn through their friends, the school, the the environment, they will learn very easily. We don't need to to teach them the language of the con of the country. We don't really. Yeah. You see what I mean? It's yes. It's, uh, very important to be to be convinced that this is the best way and uh, be proud of the fact that we've got a, a, a cultural ba background and then uh, the, the the child will learn as well with the flow the language of the country of the country we live in with, there is no difficulty in in that so um I'm not really sure if this is really clear basically. no it is it is very clear I think there was a fear in the 70s yeah. A fear yeah. that if you didn't um, help your child learn English, if you live mm. in England, mm. that your child would be left out and wouldn't be assimilated in England. Mm. So I know of lots of people who were from Germany or from yeah. many countries who decided yeah. not to speak their mother tongue to their child because they wanted them to assimilate. Yeah. And um, the, the culture is lost. And you said it many times. It's not just a language. It's a culture, it's a relationship to the grandparents. Yeah. It's more than just grammar, vocabulary. Absolutely. It's the whole package. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You're, you're absolutely right about that. So I have a, a question that's a bit maybe off topic. So how does your daughter feel about her cultures? Because she's got three. What does she say when people ask her um, where she's from or what's her nationality? Is it French? Is it Polish? Is it English? Is it all of it? Is it which one does she feel closer to if if she has a deeper connection? What do you think? Well, at the moment, I think, uh, given the, the the fact that she's uh, she she goes to a French school, she's very close to the to the French uh, French culture and French nationality. Um, I think that it depends on the situation as well. When she's in Poland, she's she doesn't have any problems with integrating Polish language, explaining, reading, uh, listening, well, uh, watching TV. Anything is very easy to to her. Uh, and um, I don't know if she if she's very defined as one. Uh, one nationality. She's got three, and they are very well defined. Mm -hmm. uh, I would like to say that she's more Polish, or <laughs> no, 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 she's uh, she's all three, and she's very proud of, for example, her, her her level of English. She's she she loves being in this country. She loves enjoying the this this uh, this multi multicultural um, environment so she's i would say she's a londoner <laughs> more than yes <laughs> you know what i think you summed it up london is wonderful because it's multicultural yes definitely and and it's the special thing about london is that you i, I mean i'm just looking out through my window and i know 
on my street, I've got people from Bangladesh, from France, from Italy, from Poland, from Asia, from Pakistan, from everywhere. And we all get on very well. And we all share, you know, like we, we all have Sunday roast and we, we assimilated British culture and also we brought our own culture and we all get on. And I think... Yes, you are so right about that. It's the beauty of, uh, of, uh, of this city. And uh, yes, we are very happy to, uh, to be able to experience that and to, to talk on, on a, on a daily, daily basis to all nationalities and, and, and going, for example, on a Sunday afternoon to, uh, to we are just we were just talking about it to to uh, we can choose from indian uh, chinese thai polish french what, whatever you like it's uh, and obviously british pub is it's a national treasure so <laughs> uh, we are so we are so so lucky to uh, to, to to be able to, to to be exposed to such a such a such a yeah multi various various environment yes Mm-mm. Definitely. Um, so I guess because you said you have um, your daughter goes to a French school, you must know lots of families that are multilingual. Yes. And I just wanted to ask you: Have you noticed uh, people doing things differently? Have you um, have you realized that they they might just uh, favor one language more than another? What are your thoughts on um, what your friends and acquaintances do about multilingualism? Uh, I must say that dif- there are different approaches. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I would say that uh, yes, every family is different. Every uh, every uh, experience is different, and I cannot really I cannot really comment on that. Who what's better? What's 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 not really very convenient? It's yes, but every family uh, co- copes with this uh, with this subject in a different way. Um, there is no Y mo- model. That, mm-hmm. I, I'm not really. I cannot really sh- say <laughs> what's uh, if there is a general way. For example, for a Polish culture, is this way, or or French way is is this way. I all I all I can see is that uh, for for British families, uh, languages. Uh, they don't really need to learn. Uh, well, they feel that they don't really need very often uh, foreign language. For us, yeah. it's a kind of must. It's we, it's we need to inter. Well, we need to. We, sh- we usually we need to assimilate this culture, and we choose to do that. And this is and uh, we've got facilities. We are meaning uh, we as uh, foreigners coming to 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 the UK. Uh, for 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 the British family, like a um, um, no, it's not really a, a, a must for them. So uh, because English speaking countries are, are everywhere, and English is is very generally speaking. So um, yeah, I see I, I see that I see that a lot. Um, being a teacher, but I see it also coming from other families. I have students whose parents are from Somali or uh, they're from Bangladesh. And for them, learning English is enough and they they leave their native language aside and they don't even learn to write it. 
And I always find it really sad because they're depriving their, their children from half of their identity by doing so. So yeah. I always tell them, please, please, please learn to write the language that your mother and your father write if, if your parents can help you with it, because it's, it's part of you and it's transferable skills again. You might need it in the future. So it's definitely something, an attitude I notice Mm-hmm. And I, that I want to try and change if possible. Um, and I think you, you, you were right on that one. Yes, you are right. You are right. That uh, very often, well, we, we used to, to have, yeah, to, to, to in, to, in the English uh, speaking schools, so the primar- at the primary level, we had lots of friends from, for example, it was Côte d'Ivoire. Mm-hmm. which is Ivory Coast, uh, and I could notice that the, the, the kids were not really speaking their language, and they, they were kind of um, not very, they, they, you, you could feel that they were not very open about it, and there was no, uh, the, when I, when I t- told you about being proud of your background, there was no feeling of, Okay, well, I'm from this country. I can I can express my my culture in this in this in the the, the language of my of my mom, and uh, we, we you could not feel that there is the case. And I, mm-hmm. I found it I found it very very sad that there was no um, no not, no no feeling of oh, okay oh I, I'm I'm this is something that I can it's a bonus bonus but uh, extra, yes. extra thing in your life. That you you we could not really discuss anything about the, the from the history. They didn't know anything about the country of origin. So yeah, I think it's it is changing. I guess if we, we if you can promote this uh, among your students, it would be uh, really very very important uh, for them. Mm-hmm. That that's the plan. <laughs> Um, but you, you might be also addressing a, a much deeper issue, which is the um, colonizing, you know, because mm-hmm. when when you conquer a country at Ivory Coast, um, they speak French in Ivory Coast um, yeah. because they were also colonized by France. You devalue the local indigenous languages mm-hmm. and you make all the children learn French or it could be English in Nigeria, for instance, or other countries. Col- former colonies and then you make people believe that their own language is not valuable so it might be just because we still have the effects from the past the side effects of colonization and um, we need to decolonize the curriculum and make our students understand that their their native language is just as valuable as English or German or French or Polish, mm-hmm. and that it's a bonus, as you said. Definitely, definitely. Well, when you say uh, say that, um, my my husband's family uh, is based in Corsica, mm-hmm. so this is very popular uh, to learn Corsican. Uh, in uh, well, now it is popular. Yes. Uh, so they do. So uh, uh, my daughter's um, cousins, they they do learn. They they learn uh, Corsican, and the same it is uh, for Brittany. So so his half Corsican, well, 
it's a, a, a half uh, Brit Britain. So he comes from Brittany in, in France, and it's the same situation. So, so very local uh, languages are taught now in uh, in schools and it's i find it amazing it's just uh, there is an explosion of uh, local identity through so learning through uh, through languages is so it is so important because uh, because you can you can just be richer <laughs> this way your culture I, is definitely I completely agree uh, I completely agree with you Monica uh, we're going to have to stop because there's an, 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 another show starting in 10 minutes Absolutely. so um, <laughs> thank you so much Monica thank you to all our listeners and I wish you a lovely Sunday evening definitely thank you so much for, for listening to me and, uh, and it was really really very very interesting and uh, Keep up the a, a good work <laughs> with promotion of the of uh, of new or old and, uh, languages and uh, learning is uh, and learning them. Yes, <laughs> thank you so much. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.